seeing Nicky Wyatt on the TV that night, I felt like he could see into my soul and he'd somehow dressed himself in the contents of my soul. Clear Biddles, this is your mixtape. Why don't we call it Loud in Your Head? Hello, listener, and welcome to This Is Your Mixtape, a podcast where, every episode, we take a close look at someone's life as told through music. I'm your host, Michael Collins, toxoplasmosis-infected cat servant. Today, we're chatting with Claire Biddles. Claire Biddles is a writer based in Glasgow, Scotland. She's a regular contributor to The Wire, The Line of Best Fit, and The Singles Jukebox. She writes about pop music, film, and fandom, with a focus on feminist and queer readings and the politics of desire. She also edits a number of pop culture zines, including the series Fuck What You Love, which features writing on pop star crushes by women and LGBTQ plus people. Claire and I have a great chat about boy band fanfiction, confrontational femininity, spiritual posturing, delayed queer adolescence, and wanting to be Quentin Crisp. I had a fantastic conversation with Claire, but just a heads up, the audio is a bit scratchy at times. Think of it as a vintage listening experience. Hi, Claire. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Hi, it's uh, great to be on the show. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and and what you do? So I'm based in Glasgow in Scotland. I'm a writer, primarily write about music for The Wire magazine, uh, Line Best Fit, um, the Singles Jukebox, and uh, a bunch of other places that will have me. So you're living in Glasgow. You're from the north of England. Um, You grew up in a small town, larger city... A city, but a smallish city uh, called Wakefield. Um, it's sort of near Leeds, which is a larger city in Yorkshire. Well, if you're ready, why don't we get into the songs you've chosen for us today? What's the first one? The first song is uh, called Ready or Not, and it's by A1. When I was doing the listening for this show, the first thing I saw about A1, who I confess were not a group that I was familiar with, is that they were they're, they're English-Norwegian boy band. Yes. <laughs> so why don't you tell me a little bit more about them? Uh, well, um, I'm not surprised that you hadn't heard of them. Even if you kind of liked boy bands in the 90s, they weren't really the kind of one of the more famous ones. I was always like quite contrary maybe is the word as a child uh, so I didn't want to like Backstreet Boys or Boyzone or any of the ones that like everybody else liked they were too mainstream for you <laughs> I was such a I was so bad um so I uh I really loved A1 so they were like a kind of trad boy band but uh the like slight difference was that they wrote all their own songs so I thought that it was like really cool that uh that I liked the boy band who were like actually really good musicians <laughs> <laughs> so awful to think about this now so this song ready or not is I, I was gonna pick a later song by then called caught in the middle which is actually I think one of the best songs ever written I love it um but I thought that it would be more authentic to the spirit of this podcast if I actually picked something that was actually out when I was 
a child. Uh, and so I picked this one, which is incredibly porny. Um, <laughs> so this was uh, maybe the third single from their first album. The, all of the songs for this album were super corny, but this one especially so, I think. The video was like made to look like a 1960s band in the studio with like the 60s microphones and all and like everybody in like 60s clothes, but it was just so corny. 60s clothes, but 90s hair. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, what a combination. And <laughs> I remember, I remember at the time thinking, like, knowing that it was corny, but still I was too deep into it. I was like, no, I love this and I have to love this and I have to think this is great. <laughs> so how old were you when this would have been a hit? About 11 or 12. Okay, okay. Yeah. So... I'm just thinking about my own relationship with like the sort of poppiest of pop music and how when I was about 11 or 12, I'm a bit older than you. I absolutely loved Ace of Bass. And oh, then yeah. when I got a little bit older, I sort of got that accultured sort of, oh, you shouldn't like music that's cheesy and poppy like that. You should like sort of music that is sort of deeper and, and more authentic and, <laughs> and artistic. And, and then in my early 20s, I sort of realized... <laughs> What a load of crap that was. I, <laughs> so I'm just thinking about how you know, Backstreet Boys and Instinct and so forth, that was too obvious of a choice. You went for a bit bit of a weirder, more obscure boy band out of <laughs> out of this contrarian impulse, which I think is delightful. Uh, but also that they, they did write their own songs and this was important yeah. to you as a kid. Yeah. And that you sensed that they were corny and yet you sort of still went with it. So I'm wondering how all those sort of things might interface with that. It's kind of interesting because... I had a similar trajectory as you were describing, and I imagine that a lot of people have a similar trajectory, but it kind of went back and forward quite a lot. So like quite rapidly. So, mm. you know, I'd go through phases where like when I was a young, young kid, I really liked, like, I really liked New Order when I was like eight or nine or something. Oh, wow. And like, <laughs> and like, I really liked PJ Harvey when I was about 10. And it's like, I was. You were an incredibly cool little kid. Yeah, I know. But then I like abandoned that really quickly to be like, I like this boy band, but it still has to have some kind of like difference in it, you know, something that makes it mine. Um, and then went back to like being very embarrassed about that. And I only like, when I was in my early teens, I was like, I only like the Strokes and like television and cool bands. It it kind of went back and forth like very rapidly, mm -hmm. I think. But I think the thing that kind of connects it all together is that I did have this this kind of like you say, like the contrarian kind of impulse. I always wanted to like something that was like slightly different than my peers, at least. So you've given us a bit of a view of. You uh, you liking New Order and PJ Harvey when you're quite little, and then and boy bands, which is just fantastic. And oscillating back and forth between these sort of two impulses, which are often sort of put in opposition to each other. And it's just kind of delightful to to think about a little kid who's into PJ Harvey and New Order and so forth, but also you know has the capacity to love these boy bands. I'm thinking about how for kids, musical taste is often so much tied up to expression of identity. And that sounds like something that you sort of clued into at a fairly fairly early age. I think that early on when I liked them, it was part of my identity in it was like part of my identity as like a fan. Like mm -hmm. it was really important for me to be like a fan of something. And like 
it, for, for better or worse, like my interests have always kind of shaped my identity. And that's even from being like a very young kid. I guess early kind of expressions of fandom before I kind of knew, before I had any understanding of what that really was. So it would be like me and my friends from school who also liked A1 comparing posters that we had from the various magazines that we bought. And um, I actually remembered um, the other day, and I hadn't thought about this for years, but um, one of my friends in school used to write what I would now recognise as fan fiction about... (laughs) about, and, And it was... I'd totally forgotten about this, but um, one of my friends from school would write, like, self-insert fanfiction about us and A1, um, and she would, like, write it every night and read us a new bit, like, every morning Oh, that's fantastic. That's and fantastic. It, it was so exciting because it was like, what's she going to make us do this time? <laughs> like, <laughs> and it was all very innocent. I mean, we were about 12 yeah. years old, but... Um, but uh, and obviously because she was writing it, it was mainly about her. But mm, <laughs> there yeah. were concessions to us in, um, in the great tradition of fan fiction written by twelve-year-olds. Yeah, <laughs> of course. Um, yeah, so that was like that was like a, a kind of important part of our like day and you know our routine and these kind of early identifying features of fandom were present in my life before I really knew what that was. I became interested in that as a writer or or something anything like that because I kind of write a bit about fandom now so it's kind of interesting to look back and think oh yeah this kind of existed kind of organically you know we didn't know what fan fiction was but my friend was writing it you know I love that that sort of communal expression of sort of earnest enthusiasm <laughs> yeah definitely. it's just oh that's so that's so sweet um <laughs> I'm thinking about the band now and I know when it comes to the boy band formula like it, it is, you know, different configurations of similar ingredients. So watching the video for this last night, which was my first encounter with A1, <laughs> it took me about halfway through to realize that there were two floppy-haired ones, a oh, blonde yeah, one and yeah, a brunette, because yeah. they yeah. have very similar hair. <laughs> I was mainly going by the hair. <laughs> so, And then there's the spiky-haired guy who, I guess, from what I could tell, was the most plausible bad boy. And oh, then yeah, there was sort of... Favorite. Oh, okay. I was about yeah, to ask yeah, who your favorite yeah. was. Okay. So Mr. Spikes. <laughs> yeah, he was definitely... He was my favorite. But then um, I couldn't like uh, Ben, who was the one with the dark floppy hair. Okay. Because he was the one that my friend also called Claire, who used to write the fan fiction. Um, she liked him, so we weren't allowed to like oh, him. He, he was claimed. He okay. was claimed. And then I kind of liked him, but he was like too... At the time, he was too, like, kind of, you know, too obvious for me. Well, this is the contrarian impulse again. Exactly. So I had the contrarian favourite boy band member, (laughs) uh, Paul, the spiky-haired one. And he had a tattoo and stuff, and he used to, like, talk in interviews about how he liked Marilyn Manson. And I just loved that. Ooh. Uh, (laughs) The edgy one, yeah. (laughs) Really edgy. (laughs) Um, But now it's, like, interesting because... A1 like got back together because they uh, participated in this uh, TV show called The Big Reunion where like all bands from the 90s or whatever get back together to do a gig or whatever and they came back although they'd still been recording they'd still been recording together and releasing music in Norway oh wow uh, but like that wasn't talked about in the TV show. It was just like, they've not seen each other for 10 years. It's like, well, they have, if you look on their Wikipedia, <laughs> which I obviously had to research what my favourite boy band had been doing. 
So they went on the show, and Paul, the one who's my favourite one, uh, didn't make an appearance because he'd, like, fallen out with them so much, which made me, and what they were saying about him made me reassess my favouritism. Is there anything else that you hoped you might talk about when it came to A1 and, and your early years? Me and the friend who wrote the fan fiction and a couple of our other friends um, had our first experience of actually meeting a band uh, because my mum drove us to a, a, a signing that A1 were doing um, and we must have been, I think we were 12 at that time. It was so exciting because we'd seen them in concert together. Um, but like meeting them was like a whole other deal. We were just like, how are we going to survive this? And the the signing, instead of being in a record shop, it was in a supermarket. <laughs> and I don't know why. <laughs> it was maybe like they, they couldn't get in a record shop, like in the area or something. So they did it in a supermarket. So my mum drove us up to it and we met them. And I remember like really rehearsing in my head beforehand, like this is what I'm going to say to them. They're going to think that I'm cool because obviously I was, I wanted them to know that I was cool and not like a regular fan. Like I was a cool Mm -hmm. person Mm -hmm. Um, and rehearsing in my head, rehearsing in my head. And then uh, obviously couldn't say anything to them when we saw them. And then, like my friend's camera that she was trying to use to take pictures of us with them didn't work and it was a disaster but um that was my first kind of experience of like meeting your heroes (laughs) in a supermarket in the north of england (laughs) 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 so what song do we have next uh so the next song is yes by the manic street preachers Why don't you tell me the story of how you got into the Manic Street Preachers? The Manic Street Preachers were an obsession of mine from when I was a young teenager. Kind of overlapped a bit with the boy band stuff. Um, but this was when I was getting more into the kind of like, I like serious music. I'm a mm-hmm. serious person kind of thing. Yeah. You're a serious teenager with serious feelings and with thoughts. Yeah. serious feelings and thoughts. <laughs> So I think I'd heard them um, when I was uh, around sort of nine or ten because they had some hits on the radio. So um, I kind of just heard them as uh, somebody who'd listened to the radio um, and I was aware of them and liked them. I at the, Around that time, the way that they were presenting was quite kind of plain, like... Um, just kind of like quite boring clothes, like quite muted um, clothes. And I just thought that they were like a bunch of guys, like a bunch of guys who at the time seemed old, although they're probably around the same time age as I am right now. But then so I saw them performing on TV when I was uh, 12 years old, performing at Glastonbury. And it was songs that I knew and I kind of liked from hearing off the radio. But the uh, bass player, instead of wearing, like, you know, grey trousers and a white shirt, was wearing a dress. And this was 
a deeply exciting moment for me. <laughs> um, at first, I was like, "Have they changed the? Have they changed? Like, has have they got a new bass player? Is it a woman?" And I thought it was a woman, like a very beautiful statuesque woman wearing a very short dress, gorgeous with like loads of glitter on her face. But it wasn't. It was a guy, and it was the same guy, Nicky Wire, who became a very formative influence on me. It was the first time that like I'd seen I'd seen a musician and it felt like it was for me. Like before mm. it kind of felt with boy bands and kind of liking pop music and stuff like that. It felt like it had been made for people like me, mm-hmm. i.e. children, young teenagers. But it didn't I, I didn't feel this kind of like visceral connection. But seeing Nicky Wire on the TV that night, I felt like he could see into my soul and he'd somehow dressed himself in the contents of my soul. <laughs> so it was like a very, and also another thing about me is that like, that will come up again is that I have very kind of rapid interests and things. Like I, I, I get into things very quickly, very intensely. And this was maybe the first proper instance of that. So I managed to get a couple of the records, managed to find out about them. Again, this was like dial-up internet, so I kind of didn't really know what I was looking for, and I could only mm-hmm. go on the internet for about five minutes a day. Yes. Um, <laughs> Just spend like, 45 yeah. minutes downloading a random MP3 and hope it's a good one? Oh, like, yes. yes. So, <laughs> I did plenty of that. So, yeah, found out as much as I could about them. I found out that um, the record that they'd been touring was actually their fifth record, and they had these three records before I even knew who they were when they had um, another member um, called Richie Edwards who disappeared in 1995. Um, So obviously wanted to know about him, and he, in the pictures that I found, like, he looked kind of the same as Nicky Wire and like they mm. both had this like it this kind of feminine feminine look but also a very kind of like very confrontational look um so they looked like scary but also sexy but also feminine but also yeah it was like so much at once yeah even thinking about it now, it's like <laughs> quite overwhelming. But um, <laughs> well, it, it sounds like it's blending energies that culture doesn't often like to put together. Yeah, so. exactly. And the fact that they were making rock music as well was like deeply exciting then, because uh, I mentioned before that like I used to like, I remember liking PJ Harvey when I was a kid, and I don't know if I'd even heard many PJ Harvey songs I just remember seeing a photograph of her and it's mm-hmm. that photograph of her where she's wearing she's on stage again and she's wearing like a pink catsuit and like red lips and like black hair and looks very like beautiful but confrontational and I was kind of getting that same energy from this band so it was like deeply exciting mm-hmm. so I kind of got into them got their records um, downloaded dodgy mp3s from LimeWire <laughs> to try and get like these extra you know like b-sides that i couldn't readily get pre-spotify kind of age and over the years i kind of developed this kind of interest in them um this like obsession with them really (laughs) 
the song that I picked, um, yes, is from a record called The Holy Bible, which is um, their third album. Um, and this record is one of my favourite albums of all time. Um, it was uh, written and recorded. Um, it was the last record that they made with Richie Edwards, and it was written and recorded um, around a year before he disappeared. And it's very, he was a very kind of troubled person and uh, went through a lot of um, kind of problems with substance abuse, alcoholism, um, eating disorder, uh, depression and, and a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, he was a very troubled person. He was also hyper intelligent. Mm-hmm. And the best way that I can describe this record is that it's super dense. Like, I still don't understand what half of it means. It's very verbose and very... um, There's a lot of references to politics, literature, and I don't understand them all even now listening to this record so many years later. Um, Something that I really admire about his writing style on this, and especially in this song, is that how he kind of takes on um, other people's voices or uses kind of examples from literature or politics or kind of society as a way to kind of work through his own problems and to work through his own pain and uh, difficulties. And um, this song, well, it's kind of written from the perspective of a sex worker. I wonder, I, I kind of did think, listen to it and think, I wonder what it would be, what the reaction would be if this was released now, like a guy kind of writing from the posi- this position of, like, a woman sex worker. Like, I'm not sure what that would be, but I still think it's, like, an extraordinary song. It it doesn't moralise in a, the way that you would expect. It's It's got a kind of weird um, kind of contrast between feeling kind of used by society but also feeling autonomous. It's, it's a very gentle balance that I think is struck very well in this song um and it's it the feeling of it it's just it it's very it's the first song on the album um and it's very kind of propulsive and very kind of like very dense sonically as well as lyrically but the it kind of leaves you feeling exhausted <laughs> you know it's got I, I think it speaks to 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 feelings that I would find it difficult to articulate. And that's why I think it's an extraordinary song. That's one of the things that music can be good at is getting at the feelings that are hard to put into words um, because music is sort of a, I mean, lyrics are a language, but so much of music is not language. So, yeah. I mean, that's a fairly basic observation to make. Yeah, guess, no, no, but, but it's, it's really true. And, and I think really apt here. And um, I, I think that I think is really interesting about Manitz is they all write the music, but they all write the songs, but they have a very established role within the band. So um, originally it was Nicky Wire, Richie Edwards wrote the lyrics, sometimes together, sometimes separately, sometimes by kind of contributing half and half sort of thing. One would write chorus, one would write this. Um, and now Nicky writes all the lyrics. Um, and James Dean Bradfield and Sean Moore uh, write the music. And it's obviously that comes second uh, to the lyrics are written first and then the music's written second. They were friends from when they were at school together, kids 
in like a small town in Wales. Um, and I think it really speaks to their like understanding of each other that their music and lyrics has such a synergy, which I, I guess again is like a very like a very obvious observation. But um, I think more than anything else, and especially on this song, he you really feel the the pain and exhaustion of the lyrics within the music. Did you get to meet them? Yes, yes. So I kind of wanted to talk a bit about um, the idea of fandom because when I became a Mannix fan, it was it felt like very much like I am a Mannix fan now. This is who I am. And it, in a way, it's like an, a kind of identity that was shaped in my teens, but it's carried on until now. Like I can really trace... Uh, a lot of things back to the Mannix. Yeah. I, I feel like I remember that Mannix Street Preacher fans, that was very much a sense that that is a fan community. Yeah, Go on. definitely. And <laughs> uh, that was like kind of one of the original, like, you know, like now there would be like, you know, stands on Twitter or whatever and like groups of fans, like Believers and stuff. <laughs> um, <laughs> I can't think of any of the other names. The Beehive? The Beehive. The Rihanna. Rihanna's are called the Navy, which is quite labored. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. But these exist. These anyway, sort of fan these, armies these exist. These groups of people. Yeah. So I feel like Manix fans are like one of the original, like, like autonomous fan groups like and they were picked on in the music press for being like intense bookish young people who studied English literature at university and like overly uh, serious overly serious cried about their feelings which is to an extent is true (laughs) but that's the appropriate time of life to be that way (laughs) yeah exactly and I mean, like, I was an intense teenager, but I'm a very intense adult, so I feel like it was just setting me up to be like... I, I, I believe that there are people who liked the Manics when they were teenagers and were Manics fans as teenagers and grew out of it. What I'll say is that whenever I meet somebody and they tell me that they were a Manics fan, it's never a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> this like, is a little bit like Gaydar, but it's just for uh, Manic Street Preachers. Oh, like. yeah, 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 yeah. Like, I've always, I've, it's always like, oh, yeah, of course. Whether it's like they're wearing an item of clothing that is like leopard print, where like, uh, or like they uh, sort of talk about the books that they read that might have been books that they got into because of the Mannix or like um, I was talking about this with uh, a couple of my friends actually when we went to see them recently and we were talking about all the things that we did because of the Mannix and because something that's kind of important to know about them is that not only were they kind of a band so you'd get into their music they were kind of a doorway into another world so um, they would always quote things on their lyric sheets, so quote books, and they would have a lot of imagery um, that was like kind of borrowed from other places. So they'd, you know, in their very early singles, they would use a lot of imagery from like old Hollywood and then from like kind of pop art. Um, later on, they kind of around the time of the Holy Bible, which was the album that this song is from, and um, they used a lot of. Um, imagery that referenced like kind of apocalypse now and stuff like that like they had like all these they they wore like all these like kind of military outfits and then they had like on the stage like all this like kind of it was kind of almost like an army barracks or something like with all these like 
um, camo material. It was wild. There was always like before again another thing that's kind of in pop a lot now is like the idea of the era and like a look of an era like the manics really did that in the 90s like everything had a look a theme like and a reading list basically (laughs) so like so many books that i read when i was a teenager because the manics referenced them that then led me on to reading other things and led me on to being interested in art, which led me to go to art school. And I, I, I mean, I can count a, a million things about my life right now, just like looking around my living room where I'm sat here and I can see things that came about because I was a manic school. It, it sounds like it sort of uh, awakened you to a lot of, you know, the, a wider world of art and literature and ideas and politics. Yeah, like like a gateway to to many other things. It's always interesting. Like se- several of the mus- several of the artists that I was into when I was a teenager had a similar function for me. And I grew up in a very isolated part of the world. So you know, uh, my husband grew up in New York City, and he used to cut school to go hang out at the Met, which is something you can do when you live in a place like New York. But when you live in a more isolated kind of a place, like the pathways by which these sort of bigger ideas get to you can be very unusual and interesting so yeah it definitely felt like a a kind of alternative schooling in a way you know an enrichment program as well as a band it was was. (laughs) fantastic (laughs) so what's the third song that you have for us uh so the third song is uh i don't know what it is by rufus wainwright so why don't you tell me how it is this song came into your life so i've kind of picked this song to represent the fugue state of my 20s okay this song came into my life much earlier one one came out when i was like 15 years old a bunch of my friends were into him as well we used to go and see him live play these fabulous shows with a million people on stage one time and then the next time we'd play and it'd just be him and a piano and it was always like very dramatic and I loved him but I never really I guess I never really thought too much about the kind of lyrical content I think that one one specifically was like poses to an extent which was his album before that but one one which this song is from specifically was like waiting in the wings for me. <laughs> I was I was reading about the background of this song and I read an interview with Rufus talking about the song. The, the, so the song's lyrics the, the start with, I don't know what it is, but, I've, but you've got to do it. I don't know where to go, but you've got to be there. Apparently he wrote it when he was, uh, after he'd been to a party in New York for The Strokes. Mm-hmm. Um, who I was really big into at the time as well. They, side, they said it was this idea that nobody knew what was cool. They were on the cusp of something, but nobody knew what was cool yet, but they knew that it was somewhere in this room. <laughs> the song is such a perfect encapsulation of that. And obviously his example comes from a very specific place, but I think it's such a specific encapsulation of that feeling of being in your 20s and not knowing what it what anything is yet you know that it's 
out there somewhere, but you don't know what it is and you don't know how to get to it, but you guess that you'll just kind of muddle through until you find it. Like, do you know what I mean? This. Want one and want two. I can. Re- so I was a big Rufus Wainwright fan. Um, around, well, I got into him with his debut. Poses was my favorite, and I stuck around for the Want albums. And then I kind of sort of we grew apart after that. <laughs> I can remember thinking about how it's the difficult to articulate desire. There is the the sense that there is something, but it is not. <laughs> what is it is not known. And I mean, that's exactly what the song is saying. I brought up the lyrics on Genius right as you began reading them in his typical Rufus Rainwright fashion, like, uh, give me heaven or hell, Calais or Dover. <laughs> There's so many great couplets in it. And I love how it's it kind of manages to have this kind of louche kind of way about it, whilst also being about something that's like very real fear. And I think that he's really good at it. I think that that's just like, I, I don't know about you, but I went to, I moved to basketball when I was 19, went to art school, mm-hmm. had a great time, met loads of friends. Then at 21, I'd finished and I didn't know, and I was kind of spout the other side, you know, as we all are after we do a degree or whatever. It, it was It was just this kind of like, feeling of still not knowing who I was, even though I was supposed to have gone to art school to figure out who I was. Yeah. And I mean, at 21, you're still very young. Exactly. Like... Exactly. And I, I haven't gone back to do a master's degree or anything else. A, a few more friends did. And I remember thinking, like, I, I know exactly what you're doing. It's because it's because you don't know either, but you're trying to be proactive about it. Because, <laughs> like, you see, 21 is, is so young. And... Like, I'm 31 now, and I still haven't a clue, really. Yeah. I know some people in their 20s who are very driven and have a very definite idea about what their goals are and how they're going to get them. But I think that's an unusual way to be. Yeah, absolutely. I think most of us are just muddling. Like... <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it, that's that's true. But then, you know, they're the people who are loudest. It, it's not they're loud, they're loud in your head. You know, the idea of this is loud in your head. and you think, oh God, I should know. Like, I spent all this money and all this time and I should know now. And, you know, 21 seems so old when you're 21. <laughs> Did you have a quarter life crisis at 25? <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. I think I have one about every three years. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I'm, that's kind of, I, I kind of like flippantly said that this was about the fugue state of my 20s. But I genuinely think that it was like that. And, I mean, I, I did. I can think of things that I did in my 20s that were great because, like, I've got, it was, like, a holiday or, like, a relationship or, like, you know, I remember a gig that I went to or something like that. But it all kind of, like, it's all one and the same, really, because I was, because the the primary thing was this this spiritual, this idea that I was spiritually posturing. (laughs) What were some of the poses that you were assuming? Well, I tried to be an artist for a bit because I'd been to art school, but really I went to art school because I wanted to meet other people who went to art school. I think that's a fine reason, but go on. <laughs> I wanted to meet those kind of people, and I did want to do art, not 
as much as I wanted to do something that was just creative, I wanted to like have a creative life and mm-hmm. I wanted to be Quentin Crisp and I wanted to you know, <laughs> be, I wanted to be a person who was a creative person, you know, like it sounds so wanky, but it's kind of like probably still true to an extent, yeah. although I'm a bit more self-aware now, I guess. So I kind of pretended to be an artist for a bit and did art for a bit, but I didn't really think about why I was doing it. <laughs> I just yeah. kind of did it and, and I tried a bunch of different different sorts of things. To a certain extent, you can think about things that you wore or things that relationships that you were in or, or records that you listened to that were poses to an extent. And, you know, that was definitely true of, definitely true of me. Yeah. And I mean, I think maybe we're encouraged too much to think about like artifice and authenticity as sort of a binary state and when they they probably bleed into each other like you know our poses that we aspire like that that's an expression of what we aspire to be or what we would like to be or things like that which are part of us like yeah no definitely i really agree and even down to like you know if you're having a bad day and you put on uh something beautiful that you want to wear because you aspire to be having a better day than you're having you know even down to that kind of thing it's 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 still true. It can still be true. You know, you can still, you can still make up your personality to an extent. It doesn't mean you're lying. It means yeah. that you're, you have vision. <laughs> I'll put on my gay hat and speak as a gay man. Okay. <laughs> like the, the, the power of um, acting and artifice and, and, and putting on, ex- changing the exterior um, because of the in- interior and all these things. I'm not articulating it well, but I mean, no, no, there's, there's a strong tradition in the gay world yes, of that. Absolutely. And, and Rufus is very, very gay. Oh, it's the gayest. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, kind of going back to times that I've seen in life, that's maybe, I think, because I think, his live performance is very true of this. Even when he's being, you know, the the symbol of authenticity, which is a man sat at a piano, you know, he'll be, he'll have come back on for the encore wearing only a dressing gown playing the piano. He'll be wearing a, a feather headdress playing the piano with, yeah. like, candles around him on stage he'll be you know like he's never just he's never just a man playing the piano and i think that that's like a kind of a good example of how he plays with these ideas of like these ideas of like kind of faux authenticity or, or kind of like putting something on and i love that about him i remember once we went to see him um because i go see rufus wainwright as a tradition every year with my mother um, that's lovely which we've been going for about six years or something now and uh, one of the times we went which was maybe about maybe one of the first times that we went uh, in Glasgow he was playing uh, he was touring that record uh, Songs for Lulu which he wrote uh, after his mother died like it's a very sad record just piano it was just him and piano that night but a guy came on before he came on and said and announced um, Rufus Wainwright was about to come on stage um, 
Rufus would like you to know that he is going to play the whole of the album, but as one piece, so please don't clap between songs. <laughs> and I was just like, fucking yes, that's brilliant. Like, telling people, it's so dramatic, like, telling people not to clap. It's a power it's, move, it's a diva thing. It's incredible. Like, I loved it so much. That is someone who understands well performance. <laughs> you mentioned, I'm thinking all the way back, um, to seeing, is it Nikki? In the dress on Manic Street Preachers. Yes. And uh, now we have Rufus, and I know we have some more queer content coming up. Yes. And um, you mentioned when I asked you to, to just talk a little bit about yourself that, like, I think I think some of your writing uh, does deals with queer issues and things like yeah. that. Yeah. So do you, do you want to speak about that a little bit? Like, it seems like Rufus Wainwright is the right segment to bring it up. <laughs> Well, I, I guess I'll I'll maybe talk about this a bit later, but um, I am queer person myself. It's very confessional. I am a queer person, <laughs> but it that is something that became that is something that became apparent to me later in life. Okay. Not not really. I don't. Oh god, I have such a tough time to talk about this. Not like a tough time, like it's difficult, but just just a tough time explaining it. Um, I was always interested in queer culture in before I even knew what that was. Like going back to seeing Mickey in a dress and being like, "This is for me," yeah. and you know, like as a kid watching Velvet Goldmine or like David Bowie or something like that, and mm-hmm. thinking like, "This is me. this is me. This is my thing." Um, so I guess, like, in a way, the kind of queer culture stuff came before the queerness. I think it's one of those things where it's, like, came to more of a solid realisation or, like, a coming out moment quite late, but it was always present. And looking back on it, I can understand my past self a bit more. You found the lens through which your past self made sense. Yeah, definitely. So, like going back to the kind of stuff about Rufus, looking back on my 20s and thinking about how I was really drawn to listening to this gay man singing about posturing and being confused and uh, now I'm drunk and wearing flip-flops on Fifth Avenue. It's my favourite line. Like, it's, you know, thinking about it now, that seems less like just a I'm in my 20s and confused thing and more specifically I'm a queer person in my 20s and confused (laughs) I'm just thinking about the way that I'll universalize it a little bit yeah the way that um being a queer person in a straight society for just call it that for ease of reference is inherently sometimes sort of disorienting (laughs) yeah and uh it can sort of lead to these crises of or moments of confusion i think that queer people respond to that when it's depicted in queer art in a way that maybe like a a straight listener might think sorry any straight listeners (laughs) i'm sure there's a few (laughs) maybe one or two maybe but but like they might think oh i i felt confused too or everyone feels a little bit lost in their 20s it's like yes 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 but this is sort of a a very profound sort of existential kind of yeah. degree. <laughs> like, 
definitely. That's my experience of it as well. I think it's, I think it's like, I, I, I don't like to talk about like queer experience as a homogenous experience, but like no. it kind of is in that respect, you know, <laughs> like that, that can be expressed in a multitude of different ways. Yeah. But I think that I mean, like, queer itself is like such a, an enormous umbrella term which includes so many identities that have very little in common with each other other than the fact that they are not the norm yeah. right? so it is that sort of like i am running contrary to the currents of culture that is the unifying experience <laughs> do you want to move on to the next song yeah let's do it okay great what do we have next okay so this song is by the 1975 and it's called uh I think that's how you pronounce it. <laughs> 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 it's a guttural sound. Giving it up, giving it up again. And Charlie, only thing that's going on in my mind. Taking love of my life a second time. I thought of the capacity for fucking you meant to be helping me. This was a really exciting song. I've never heard this before, but oh. I, I, I like I like this kind of glam, catchy, electronic, funkyness. So, well, I, I don't know anything about this band. So, why don't you give me a crash course? Oh, strap yourself in. Okay. <laughs> so, the nineteen seventy-five are a band from uh, Manchester or around Manchester, uh, North England, similar to where I'm from. Um, they have been together for a long time since they were kids again. This song is from their second album, which is called uh, I Like It When You Sleep, For You Are So Beautiful Yet So Unaware Of It. Can you can you see the thread of pretentious <laughs> voice through my life? <laughs> when they first started out, um, well, when they first started recording under the 1975, they'd previously been recording under different names. They were kind of marketed as more of a kind of like emo rock type group. Although... They have always had a, a very kind of diverse sound. So on their debut record, they had a lot of like songs that were like with minimalist electronics and uh, some kind of more like typically poppy kind of things, some kind of 80s influenced things and some like moody like R&B types things like a huge range of influences. The thing that they always say about their records is we create as we consume. So it's kind of the idea of being the kind of person who, like all of us, listens to a lot of different kinds of records and how that influences how you make records. I got into them uh, in, I can give you almost the exact date. Um, It was at the end of January in 2016. I kind of was aware of them and I'd seen pictures of them and I kind of thought that they looked just like a band which at the time I kind of wasn't really listening to much guitar music um so I was kind of a bit like oh they're just like a band of guys but I remember thinking that the singer was hot this will come <laughs> back later on <laughs> but then I remember I was driving my mum's car and my then boyfriend Stuart was in the car with me and I heard this song, ugh, the guttural sound, uh, came on the radio and I nearly crashed the car. Like I was just like, 
what the <laughs> fuck is this? <laughs> like, is this a Duran Duran song I've never heard? Is this like an In Excess song I've never heard? What yeah. is this? This can't be like a current song. This has to be something from, and, and I really love like kind of um, 80s, like pop, new wave, electronic music, like love loads of 80s stuff. So I, I kind of thought, oh God, am I revealing myself to be like actually not smart? Maybe there was like a secret Duran Duran song that this song is. <laughs> And, uh, at the end then the radio announcer was like oh this is the 1975 and i was like excuse me like <laughs> the, like this band of like also ran guys made this record that sounds like nothing else i've ever heard in my life and yet somehow sounds like every song from the 80s that i loved and so again the kind of like rapid fire zero to hundred obsession mm-hmm. <laughs> got home obviously it, kind of similar to my obsession with the manics wanting to find out everything about them but obviously now we have the internet twitter instagram everything so i could yep. find uh, within an hour i think i'd accessed about half of the pictures that had ever been taken of them and listened to their everything available on their spotify <laughs> so i was like oh shit, like I've completely, there was a feeling of like, I have been a fool. (laughs) I've completely not paid attention to this group who could have been my favourite band for like two years. They were there all along. They were there all along just waiting for me. (laughs) It was actually probably a better time. I've I've kind of thought about this a a bit since soul searching, but um, I think that it probably was a good time for me to get into them because this record... Um, the second record if the first record was in kind of shades of grey and was quite moody and quite kind of emo the second record is colour like it's it's so rich and Mm -hmm. so sickly almost like all of the again it's got that kind of mixture of uh, influences um, but it's got more of a kind of 80s sound to it Mm. I guess the video for this song is quite good. Oh and yes, it's it so is good. as you're describing. It's very bright, lots of colors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And very stylish. Obviously, I, I kind of in that initial zero to hundred obsession day, um, watched the the video of this, and I was like, "Holy shit!" Like this is <laughs> like more than even like listening to the listening to the song, which I loved. I was like, "Who?" Who are these people? Who is he? <laughs> Who is he? Where has he been my whole life? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so uh, the the video is is kind of like very, as you will have seen, is kind of very kind of like brightly coloured lights and um, lots of outfits and lots of dancing and lots of like... Very snappy editing. Yeah, very snappy editing. Um, and in the middle of it all is Matty Healy, who's the lead singer of the 1975, um, with the most beautiful curls. Somebody uh, at the Singles Jukebox, which is a website that I write for, uh, described him as old Hutchins hair. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I do think about that a lot. <laughs> but in this video, it's like extremely old Hutchins hair with like his big curly hair. Like he has about 10 different outfits. One of the outfits is him just shirtless with leather trousers on. Mm-hmm. And I was just, I just remember thinking, well, I remember thinking that he was hot. And then I remember thinking the fucking audacity of a pop star in 2016 thinking that he can be shirtless and wear leather trousers. Like, there is, like, nobody else 
is doing that. Like, Mm -hmm. that is so corny, so overdone, but he's doing it anyway. And, like, that's, for me, as I kind of got into the 1975 and got deep into my uh, intense crush on Mike Healy, (laughs) is is that, like, that's, that's a kind of really integral part of their appeal is that they are so audacious and so unbidden to seeming like cliche or to referencing uh, something in their music that's uncool or anything like that. They just like completely are their own self-contained unit. Well, how have you described them? They seem, I think a lot of bands are hemmed in by genre and even if they themselves have diverse listening habits as in the year of our lord 2019 i hope most people probably (laughs) do um they feel like they they have to make a certain kind of music and maybe they'll have a few for genre experiments but they won't stray too far off their leash and you know the sort of audacity that you're describing in wearing leather pants and no shirt is like similarly mirrored by like the audacity of like just straying all over the map in terms of yeah. the kinds of music you make. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So you mentioned um the singles jukebox. Yeah. And I know that um you you do music writing. Yes. Journalism, yeah. criticism. Um so I was interested in at what point in your life did you get into that? And do you write about these bands like the nineteen seventy five that you become sort of hyper obsessed with? Or or do you feel like that's Hmm. I don't know. Well, no, that's a really interesting. That's uh, that's an interesting question. Yeah, that's interesting, and I think appropriate to bring it up at this point because in early two thousand sixteen was when I when I kind of discovered the nineteen seventy five. That was a kind of period of a, a lot of intense change for me. Uh, one of the big changes was that I actually started stopped fucking around and started actually writing about music properly and the the catalyst for that was definitely getting into the 1975 and feeling like I had something to write about um because I'd been writing I'd been writing kind of like on and off just for myself for a couple of years and I I kind of tried to write about art for a bit and then I kind of tried to write about and then I kind of tried to write fiction, and that was absolutely terrible. Um, <laughs> I can't make things up, so I'm bad at fiction. And then I tried to write personal stuff, and I don't like writing about myself, so that was bad. But um, this, like, getting into the 1975 kind of really focused me. The only big music writing project that I'd done previous to this was another one of my favourite bands, who, sadly, I couldn't make them fit in this, uh, is uh, the synth-pop band Years and Years. Um, and I wrote a kind of big um, a week of essays about them for a site called One Week, One Band that's a really fabulous uh, site where they get different writers to write about one band for one week, as it is described. It's still online? Uh, yes, it's still online. Okay, great. Um, I'll, put a, I'll put a link to that in the show notes so people can go read that. Yeah, it's, it's a wonderful website. Um, so I did one about years and years. I loved writing it and uh, because I was writing about something that I was really invested in. And they were the first, years and years were kind of the first band for a while that I got really into who were like a current band. Um, but then 
I kind of started writing about them after they released their records. So they didn't have any kind of new stuff to write about. Um, whereas I got into the 1975, about six months after that, when they were on the cusp of releasing this huge record. And it just felt like a blessing because it was like, all I want to think about and write about is this band and they're just about to release an 18 track album (laughs) (laughs) that I can write about. Yeah. I also make uh, fanzines um, from my kind of obsession with the 1975 that led me to making uh, uh, fanzines, particularly uh, one that I make that's like my kind of primary zine called Fuck What You Love um, that is uh, women and queer people writing about pop star crushes. Um, That's amazing. Because I wanted to write about Matt Healy. <laughs> so I made a whole zine so that I could do that. Um, and got loads I, of I people. think that's what zines are for, but go on. <laughs> exactly, right? It's like, I will make this space. <laughs> I will carve out this important space. Be the change you want to see in the world. <laughs> Precisely. I believe that that was what he was referring to specifically. Yes. In that, uh, in that quote. Um, yeah, so I, I kind of like drew that. Um, through that, I kind of uh, met a lot of other music writers, people who wrote for my scene, and uh, then met a lot of other people who did scenes. And now I'm kind of like embedded in that kind of scene, which is really fun and rewarding. And, um, and I love doing it. And uh, so it was kind of like this song's fault that, that my music writing came about and my zine making came about. That it's yeah. it's a very significant song in your life. <laughs> yeah, it's very yeah, very um, appropriate choice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. As as you kind of asked as well about if I write about the things that I'm kind of obsessed with, in this, uh, I think now I have quite a good balance of writing about the things that I love. Um, so I was really lucky in the past uh, kind of six months. Um, my three favourite current artists, which are the 1935 Troy Savannah years and years, all recorded new records that I got to review. So that was like really, it kind of felt like quite a nice thing um, to happen in the past six months. So as well as um, being lucky enough to write about things that I love, um, I also make sure to have about half of the things I write about are things that I don't know um, or new things that are new to me. Um, a lot of the work that I do for The Wire um, is stuff that I am not, I hadn't heard of before or things that are in like wildly different genres than I am used to. And that's also like a good way of kind of discovering music as well. And I think it just keeps you, it keeps you sharp as a writer to write about things that you maybe have to, maybe are slightly out of your wheelhouse, you know. Do you feel ready to move to the last song? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Okay, great. Okay, so what's the last song that you have for us? So the last song is My 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 by Troy Sivan. Spark up, buzz cut, I've got my tongue between your teeth. Go slow, no, no, go fast, feel like it just as much as me. I was watching the video for this. Are you familiar? There's it was a bit of a meme a couple of years ago. Um, I think it was the movie Carol, 
where someone was in a movie theater and um, there was an old couple in front of them. And about 20 or 30 minutes in, the the old lady leaned over to the old man and said in a really loud whisper, Harold, they're lesbians. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and so I was watching this video and about half of the way through, I was like, Harold, they're lesbians. <laughs> but in this case, well, not lesbians. But <laughs> I confess crazy. that I, I didn't know um, Troy Savan. And I, I, so I was like, oh, okay, it's floppy-haired boy. And like, oh, a bit of a sort of a, you know, uh, uh, okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> I like it. Good. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. So obviously I, I, I went to his Wikipedia. So he is, he is, he is an out um, gay artist, actor, um, YouTuber, etc. So um, why don't you tell me what it is about Troy Sivan that you like so much? Oh, well, how to start? Um, <laughs> I guess I first came to Troy, uh, it would have been 2015, when he released some singles uh, ahead of his first album, Blue Neighbourhood. Um, and I'm a real sucker for, as I previously mentioned, I'm a real sucker for like 80s kind of influence stuff. And he kind of has... His first record was very kind of like cross between a kind of like sad electronic 80s thing, you know, like, and uh, a kind of teen movie soundtrack from now. Mm -hmm. You know, kind of like if like Lord had covered Say Hello, Wave Goodbye by Subcell. That was kind (laughs) of the vibe, (laughs) which is a vibe that I like. I, I really got into him and he was kind of, Although he'd been, I then found out that he'd been a YouTuber and was massively famous. I just thought that he was like some Australian boy in his uh, in his bedroom making these records, and I was like, "Oh no, he's really famous." Although he had 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 this past with making YouTube videos, he was still quite. I mean, they weren't pushing him a lot as a big pop star around that time. It it felt more like a kind of organic kind of rise to fame as a musician and it felt a bit quieter and it felt a bit more like I felt a bit more like this was an artist that like I loved that could be mine again this like kind of like wanting wanting ownership and kind of wanting to be slightly different and this kind of Mm -hmm. thing even when I was like you know 28 years old or something I was still like that's my pop star (laughs) (laughs) I loved that record that he put out and it was all kind of like kind of sad love songs, uh, suburban, like kind of, it felt very much like a kind of young person waiting for their life to happen, but still being very kind of like melodramatic about their own like romance. It it felt like something that was familiar to me, but like from a long way off. Yes. But I loved it deeply. So it took him a long time to make a follow-up. Well, a long time in current pop kind of timelines where Ariana Grande releases two albums in like four months but um, (laughs) (laughs) at the time it was uh, a very long time so three years the song came I was so excited (laughs) so like he posted like you know maybe like two seconds of that kind of like sampled voice in the intro Mm -hmm. posted that to his Instagram and he was like January the 8th (laughs) and I was just like shit 
January the 8th. Uh, because that was like five days away or something. Yeah. So, and it, it was January and it was like this kind of foggy, cold feeling where it's just like, oh, the year hasn't begun yet. It's, I still feel gross. And I was like, no, Troy is here to save the day. So the song came out at 9pm LA time because he's based in LA now, which was 5am my time. <laughs> so even though it's a Wednesday and I had to go to work the next day, um, I set my alarm for 5am and woke up, listened to the song once, was in shock at how wonderful it was and uh, then went back to sleep and then woke up again. And I was so glad that I hadn't dreamed it. <laughs> that it was real. <laughs> that this song was real. I remember thinking that at the time, I, I felt like my mind was really foggy, whether it was the time of the year or just the way that I was feeling. And this song was like, like an ice pick, like through my body. <laughs> you know, like it's so, it's so shining and so like tall and so like bright and it it felt like it was it felt like it felt like everything he'd done up until then was like sort of slightly transparent but this was like clear as day you know like a solid thing that was like the intention and it, it felt like it had an intent that it, it, he didn't have before and it was so exciting to hear the song has an exclamation mark at the end and again, that that kind of audacity. And I remember thinking, he's put an exclamation mark at the end of his song, like his first song for this album cycle. And it's just like, what an entrance, you know? Again, that like idea of gay drama. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know? Um, I, I, I'm reading the lyrics now. And... Oh, the lyrics are so good. <laughs> <laughs> I remember one of the first things I noticed um, on an earlier song called Bites, which is the second song on Blue Neighbourhood. There's a line that says, um, kiss me on the mouth and set me free, but please don't bite. And it's like that kind of tentative, like kind of like he's he's kind of like swaddled in his fear, you know. But then this song is like, I've got, you've got, is it you've got your tongue? I've got my tongue between your teeth. Yes, like. Oh, it's so good. Go slow, no, no, go fast. It's so, like, everybody <laughs> knows what you're talking about. It's just yeah. so brilliant. Like, Yeah, and I mean, the, the next bit, uh, I mean, this is repeated a lot. Let's stop running from love. Let's, you know, oh, yeah. Stop running, you know, exactly. Let's stop. <laughs> like, it's like, yeah, exactly. The, the This is not a tentative song. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's a, like, every foot forward, like, Every, like the sh- the surety and the audacity is just like so clear and mm-hmm. there's no there's no mixed metaphors like <laughs> 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 this is this is a gay love song and a gay fucking song <laughs> and it is it is definitely a gay sex song yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> definitely so the the audacity and the forwardness and the the assured nature of it this is something that really speaks to you right now yeah definitely i've kind of like put this in as my like kind of now song um not because it's something that i feel like i have arrived a state that i feel like i have arrived at um mm-hmm. but it's because it's just, it's something that i want to have pinned to my vision board <laughs> um and it feels kind of silly 
to think about that because Troy Sivan is 22, 23, very young guy. Um, so it feels kind of silly to be like, I want to be like this 22-year-old boy. Like, <laughs> but I want to have the confidence of this 22-year-old boy. But it, but it's really true. And I think going back to the thing about um, coming out, I hate that phrase, mm. but coming to your own queer identity, that only really happened to me in like about three years ago or something like that. So I feel like um, I'm still living through this kind of like queer adolescence, yeah. even though I'm like 30, 31 years old. I think that's that's very, very legitimate. Queer people don't get to do their adolescence properly the first yeah. go around. So it's really common for them to have another crack at it in their 30s. Like. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I've spoken to a lot of people about this as well. Um, and and specifically to do with... Um, Choice of Anne's music, and um, I've mentioned the website One Week One Band, um, and I did another one about Choice of Anne uh, last year, um, just after Bloom came out, which was the the album that this song is on. My friend Vikram, who is a very talented writer, um, and like a doctor and plays football, and he's very accomplished. Person. He wrote about um, about Choice of Anne and queer adolescence, and about how he is also feeling a similar thing and also feels like Troy is there to guide him in a way. Um, and also feels that kind of, we, we were talking about it together and about how we kind of feel slightly like maybe it's a bit silly, but then no, it isn't silly. Like it's, it's real. I think if you're the kind of person who allows music to shape your life to an extent, which I guess if you're listening to this podcast or if you are hosting this podcast, then you are that kind of person. But, um, I think that there's no shame in finding something to aspire to or finding truth that you want to aspire to in music. Absolutely. That is definitely one of the things this show is about. And I mean, it's not like you are saying that Troy Sivan, the person who I'm sure is complicated and has bad days and has moments of doubt, you're, you're, you're Troy Sivan, the the icon, the the public persona, yeah. is the sort of avatar of confidence and and um, forwardness. So yeah, like I think that makes perfect sense. Like, yeah, definitely. That seems like a great place to end it. If people want to get in touch with you or find your writing or things like that, where can they look? Primarily, probably my Twitter account, which is at Ms. Claire Biddles. And I kind of link to a bunch of my writing on there. Um, you can also find me regularly on uh, the singlesjukebox.com and the lineofrestfit.com. And you can uh, find me pretty much every month in the Wire magazine, which is print only. Very unusual. Ooh, how uh, retro. Times. <laughs> but primarily on Twitter. Yeah. And your zines are circulating around Glasgow? Uh, yes, they are available in Category Is Books, which is a bookshop run by my friends Fee and Charlotte who uh, and it's the uh, only queer bookshop in Scotland um, so please do come visit and uh, pick up my zines there or you can uh, pick them up at fwyl.bigcartel.com Thank you so much for being my guest today it's been wonderful, thank you oh, that was so much fun Many thanks to Claire for sharing her life and music with us. This Is Your Mixtape is a proud part of the Megaphonic Podcast Network. 
Check out all of our fancy little podcasts at megaphonic.fm. Like Dear Reader, where me and my friend Emily catch up and talk about the most interesting thing we've read in the past month. For more information about this episode of This Is Your Mixtape, check out the show notes at megaphonic.fm slash mixtape slash 30. 30! My name is Michael Collins, and you can find me on Twitter at Earl King, while this show is also on Twitter at This Is Your Mix. You can also email the show at mixtape at megaphonic.fm. Hearing from listeners makes my day. If you want to support this podcast, the most helpful way is to leave a review on iTunes. It really helps with the mysterious magic of the algorithm, so head on over and give me some stars. I hope you've enjoyed today's mix. We'll see you next time. <laughs>